This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Back from the summer break and out of the studio this week, out of the country even, I'm in Brussels where the third round of Brexit talks have just wound up. I'm in the Belaymont building, the sprawling, vast, slightly too trendy for its own good home of the European Commission. And I'm joined by Times political reporter and Brexit expert, Henry Zeffman. I've said that from the beginning of this process, some parts of this will be turbulent, hard, uh, difficult, and of course we will see that because there are differences of view which have to be resolved. But both sides, and this was very apparent this week, both teams uh, aim to be constructive, aim to get an outcome which is in the benefit of both the European Union and the United Kingdom. The single market, the EU capacity to regulate, to supervise, to enforce our laws must not and will not be undermined by Brexit. We're sitting, Henry, on some slightly trendy office chairs uh, underneath a glass ceiling uh, here at the Blaymore building. A, a, a rare bit of daylight because as far as I can tell, I haven't been in Brussels for a couple of days, everything seems to take place in windowless, stuffy rooms uh, with people a bit talking very technically, but not a lot of progress being made uh, in the briefings we've been in, which feels like a mirror image of what's been actually happening during the talks. Uh, yeah, it's quite clear that uh, this round of talks has been very far from a success. Uh, earlier today, uh, David Davis and Michel Barnier held... Uh, a press conference uh, in which they both uh, set forth their views on how these uh, four days of talks have gone. And David Davis said, oh, I think we've made, you know, a concrete amount of progress. And Michel Barnier said, we have made no progress. And when the two sides <laughs> can't even agree on the extent to which they agree on other things, uh, it rather suggests that <laughs> things haven't quite gone to plan. Now, why does this matter? It matters because, as Michel Barnier kept saying, the clock is ticking, not just till Brexit Day in March 2019, but most importantly, till October. And the October round of talks, which happened two months from now, is the deadline that the EU has set for making, in their terms, sufficient progress 
on three key issues in order to be able to move on to talking about what Britain, in particular David Davis, and in particular people like Liam Fox, really want to get on to talking about, which is trade. And so it felt like over the summer there was an awful lot. The debate about Brexit got increasingly techy when we were talking about the transportation of isotopes. Uh, absolutely vitally important though that is. It felt like we were slightly disappearing into the weeds, having not really dealt with the big substantial stuff. And the overwhelming thing that comes out of this is there is a massive stumbling block at the moment, and that's money. What do we pay as the price of leaving the EU club? And then what do we pay in future during a transition deal? And then what do we pay subsequently because we want to access the EU market? And it just feels like they are so far apart on the issue of money. Brussels says, just to boil it down, if you haven't been following it, all that Brussels basically says, anything that we agree to spend as members of the EU during the current spending round which ends in 2020, we still have to honour that, even though we're not going to be members. So the slice of our cash that was going to be spent on a green building project somewhere in Europe or on foreign aid for Africa or loans to Ukraine, we still have to cough that up. So they, they want to tot all that up uh, and we've got to write a cheque for that amount even before they start discussing what we might have to pay um, as part of a transition deal. It, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that the discussions are still incredibly techy. It's just that something that we sometimes lose is the fact that all these incredibly technical things which you know a few expert civil servants are working away on in dreary rooms build up to incredibly political questions. And, and in the case of money, the political question is, is, is who's going to blink first? You know, the EU wants us to pay a large amount of money as a effectively a price for getting that comprehensive trade deal that Britain wants, as well as also effectively a sort of retribution payment for leaving the bloc. Britain is happy to pay a large amount of money, although you won't necessarily get some ministers admitting that in terms, in public at least, but we want to be clear that we are in fact going to get that good trade deal first. And so the, 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 big, the big question, that basically the problem is they, the EU wants to sew up all of the divorce the terms of leaving and the price of leaving before they'll even get on to talking about what happens next in, in the future and we're basically saying well hang on we're not going to cough up a load of money and an astonishing amount of money uh, as part of the price of leaving to start with and then you come up with another bill later on well the, 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 there's that and also the divorce bill as the British see it uh, is effectively a down payment in order to get a positive some good, future relationship some good will, yeah, but yeah. what they don't want to do is agree a sum with the EU, or not even a sum, perhaps just a, a mechanism for arriving at the sum, and then let the EU say, all right, we've got that in writing, we'll bank that, and by the way, here are all the obstacles to a trade deal, and we're not going to sign one for years. That's not in the EU's interests, but there is still that sort of non-negligible chance that it might happen, which is enough to make Britain very cautious about agreeing things. But, but, but I mean, the, the talks on money this week, um, have been incredibly techy and incredibly intense and it is worth just noting by October they're meant to have reached agreement on this they're not even talking about figures yet we're not saying Britain are miles apart from the EU because the EU wants X and the UK wants Y it is they are talking about different ways of working out how much Britain might have to pay and Britain hasn't even advanced its own argument for how much they think they should pay and how they think they should arrive at that all they've been doing is rebutting 
the EU's own proposals for how they should arrive at that. And I won't go into the sort of technical details of the EU's proposals, but it, I mean, it is incredibly complex and technical stuff. Britain has, has just been making a legal argument, but also they're sort of suggesting the EU actually isn't, isn't that prepared. So uh, we, we uh, Brit- people close to British <laughs> officials have, have basically been brandishing lever arch files and saying, "Look how much we've got." We we gave them a twenty-seven slide presentation, an eleven-page document. This is where, this is where it's got particularly silly this week, mm. the, the, with no one apparently able to make any progress on the substantive uh, points. We've ended up with a slightly silly war of words, which came down to so the the, the, the idea has got legs that the. the the British team aren't very well prepared. That David Davis sort of turns up with no paperwork and all that sort of stuff. And at the beginning of the week, John Claude Juncker said he'd read all of the British government's position papers and they weren't satisfactory. So then we had uh, people from the British side letting it be known that they didn't think that the Brussels paper on uh, what the bill should be um, was very satisfactory. They said it was only four pages, whereas they'd got 11 pages. And there was even talk about how big the fonts were and how, conde- how condensed the text was. And it, it, I just think once you get down to having an argument about who's used up the most stationary, rather than uh, even getting close to uh, reaching agreement on how they're going to work this out, it just feels like incredibly far apart. And even to the point where you can't really see a way through uh, them resolving it definitely not in time for October which is well, what, what it means that October where it once might have been envisaged that was going to be a, a, a moment of accomplishment for both negotiating teams they could say to each other and to the public here we are we have made progress on these issues now we're moving forward and talking about other things uh, it is not going to be that it is going to be fraught it is it is going to be the crunch point of the Brexit talk so far you know, the point at which uh, Britain and Brussels are going to have to make really important decisions about where they're willing to give ground. So in Britain's case, it probably is going to have to be making some sort of concession on the divorce bill, some sort of commitment that they think uh, doesn't, still doesn't run into that risk we were talking about earlier, where it compromises the possibility of actually getting a future trade deal. For Brussels, it's probably something on citizens' rights. So they've been having lots of discussions this week about health care and about pensions and things like that. Uh, not quite got as far as Britain wants, but it, it seems like they are at least on the path to agreement. So, so one example is, is the European Health Insurance Card, which is the system under which any EU, uh, any EU national or national of an EU member state, if they get injured, uh, or get ill on holiday. And we've all had them. And when you go all, on holiday, it's yeah. a plastic sort of credit card size thing with the EU flag on it. And it basically means if you get injured skiing or fall over on a beach in Spain, you basically get the same healthcare exactly. rights as you do at home. And, and, and Britain wants uh, the EU to agree to basically continue that scheme with Britain uh, after Britain leaves the bloc. And there is a sort of precedent for that, which is that the EEA countries, uh, Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein, uh, albeit more closely integrated with the EU than Britain is likely to be after Brexit, they, they are also covered, covered by the EHIC scheme. What Brussels are saying is, well, in a word, no, uh, but in, in a longer answer they've said, well, we're willing to do that for some people. We will continue the scheme for British people already living in the EU at the point of Brexit. So, for example, if you are a pensioner in Spain, who a British pensioner in Spain, who now and then pops over the border into Portugal, 
And if you pop over to the, the border into Portugal in 2024 and get ill, you are covered by EHIC, you will get treated for free. But for anyone else, no. Uh, it doesn't feel impossible that they will come to some accommodation there. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we are seeing what Brussels always said was going to be the case and what uh, Brexiteers in particular like David Davis scoffed at, which was that, you know, once you're outside the block, you're outside the block. Never mind that you're Britain, you're outside the block. And we saw this, uh, there was a discussion at the press conference, I mean, it was quite notable how frosty the press conference got. David Davis started off trying to make out it got a bit better than uh, maybe it had. But then once he realised that Barnier was in a bad mood as well, it got increasingly frosty. And at one point, um, Barnier accused Britain of nostalgia about the single market. When I read some of the papers that David has sent me on behalf of the British government, in some je, je une sorte de proposals, I see a sort of nostalgia. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wouldn't confuse a belief in the free market for nostalgia. And it does feel a bit like all, the, all of the assumptions and starting points of these talks are how do we basically recreate everything that yeah. we currently enjoy while being outside the EU. Well, speaking about that kind of extraordinary uh, aside from David Davis to Michel Barnier, but it, 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 was a, it gave you a sense of, of the acrimony uh, that if we're not already at, we are headed towards. Um, I thought it was, a, it, it was actually quite an interesting example of, of we're told that David Davis was kind of blindsided by how, uh, how, how tough Michel Barnier was in their, in their presentations today. So in previous press conferences, uh, you know, both men have been firm, but in sort of diplomatic language. And they've said, yes, we're making progress, but, and made comments that they knew would be interpreted in certain ways. But the, the Barnier statement today was uh, the furthest either man has gone in any of these instances. But more than that, David Davis and his team really didn't think it was going to happen. And so uh, I think there were parts of his statement which jarred, you know, like him saying that they'd made good progress straight after Michel Barnier said that they hadn't, <laughs> but also more subtle things. Uh, and, and also parts of the statement that I think he might have had to excise, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 was, it was Michel Barnier, you know, showing his, his experience and clout as a negotiator. I mean, remember, this man has been an EU commissioner. He was the foreign minister of France. He is more experienced at sitting around negotiating tables in this soulless building than David Davis. For all he touts the fact that he was minister of state for Europe in the 90s, he's more experienced at this than David Davis. Now, Britain has incredibly experienced civil servants, very impressive civil servants who know the EU inside out. But when it comes to Davis v Barnier, Michel Barnier is, is wily. And so when we come back in search of moule frites and continental blonde beers, maybe in September and then again in October, what do we expect? Are we going to keep, you and I have had conversations writing it for the Red Box email and writing it for the paper and for the Times website. What is the story, you know, isn't the story deadlock? Well, we wrote that yesterday or, you know, that was the story the day before yesterday. Is the story going to keep being deadlock for the next month, two months, three months, maybe into next year? Uh, I, th I think it probably will be, and I think it will be deadlock on a series of different issues, and the deadlock might slightly change, and you, know, you might get, even if, even if neither side blinks, they might you know, show a little bit of leg and suggest that they might be willing to adapt their position on a certain, on a certain front. But uh, yes, I think, it, I think uh, to put it, 
quite unhelpfully, I think it will be deadlocked until it's suddenly not. Uh, and, and, and that's the way the EU does business. I mean, we were talking about David Cameron's uh, ultimately failed renegotiation, but what at the time, I mean, it's miraculously little more than a year ago, but at the time he came to this building and, and, and saved Britain from leaving the European Union by, by getting a, a few I minor remember, concessions. I remember, I remember that well as well, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and, and uh, that happened very late at night because that's the way the EU does business. I remember having to book another night in the hotel because of David, Davis, uh, David Cameron's inconsiderate uh, <laughs> timekeeping. It was famously, it was supposed to be a deal done at breakfast, which then became, it was a working breakfast, yeah. and then it became a working brunch, and then a lunch, and then they stopped putting time scales on it. It basically ended up being a dinner uh, where the deal was done. And I'm not sure in the end that that's the right way to do these things, but maybe there's something about working towards a deadline. You just, you just uh, it's that old law of you just fill the time you've got, whether it's getting an essay in or transfer deadline day or whatever it is people will fill the time and in the end far more will be done in that last hour or so of uh, the negotiations than for the weeks and months before. But the, 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 the brilliant thing about the Article 50 process is that it does set a, a very clear immovable deadline. The brilliant thing about the Article 50 process is it, it does set a deadline which is the end of March uh, 2019 at which point Britain ceases to be a member of the European Union. In the words of, of, of the Lisbon Treaty of which Article 50 is the 50th article of uh, the treaties cease to apply to the member state. Now, we're probably going to end up with some sort of transitional arrangement, but you know we're not even going to be able to start talking about transitional arrangements until we've made sufficient progress on citizens' rights, on the divorce bill, and on, as we've not talked about, the Northern Irish border, which is still you know an incredibly complex, complex question. So, yes, it will happen close to the deadline, but they can't relax the deadline. And one of the interesting things I found, you know, over a, uh, a blonde beer one night in Brussels was people start talking about what happens if we do literally fall out with no deal. You know, planes can't take off, uh, trains can't run to the Eurostar, all the stuff that the sort of everyday workings of life could uh, grind to a halt if that happens without any transition. I mean, it's not, it's not scaremongering to say that, you know, the British states, almost the entirety of the British states regulatory structure, the stuff, the, the, the red tape to give it its tabloid phrase, but you know, the stuff that, that decides how things happen comes from European law. And when that suddenly ceases to be the case and we don't cooperate cross-border in those regulations, there are all sorts of things that can't happen. So the example you use of planes, under the European airspace uh, regulations, uh, the air the, basically, the international airspace on which, uh, uh, through which planes fly from one EU uh, member state's airport to another are regulated by the European Union. Air traffic control is governed by European agencies. Now, it wouldn't be very complex to you know, find an accommodation, whatever form of Brexit we end up with, to mean that planes can still take off. But if it is the case that we suddenly crash out without a deal, it's not just that straightforward for planes to continue to fly. I mean, they will find a way of sorting it out, but it's not obvious, it's not. And I think maybe only being here is, the, 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 is it becomes so obvious that that is why, in a way, the EU has the upper hand in these negotiations. Sure. Because uh, the negative of not getting a deal falls almost entirely on Britain. Uh, so we need, we need a deal, Britain needs a deal far more than 
the EU maybe feels like it does. That, that's correct, and it's not it's not just a question of regulation in that respect. Uh, you know, not not trading with Britain for a while, if which is probably what would happen if we crashed out, would be bad for the European Union. But proportionally, the UK is far more exposed uh, in terms of. Europe being its main trading partner than the EU is, is well, with Britain. For the simple fact that we trade with 27 other countries and each of those 27 other countries is only trading with one in us. Exactly right. And, and, and the idea that David Davis in particular used to have that you could just square this issue by going to Germany and saying, oh, come on, you know, uh, you want our cars, uh, is, is, is nonsense. On the other hand... Uh, Theresa May's, one of her proposed ways of trying to break this deadlock is before October and at the October European Council summit, which happens before the negotiations, uh, she, she wants to basically go over the heads of Michel Barnier and his negotiating team and say to European leaders, heads of uh, government and heads of state, no, come on, come on, this is ridiculous, we can sort this. And, and you know, head of government to head of government, it's possible that she just might be able to loosen slightly the EU's collective uh, position. But, you know, it will require all her diplomatic skill uh, and uh, it's a tall order. And, you know, but since she's announced she's going to go on and on, then maybe, maybe she's got, um, got the time to do that. But, I mean, you know, picking up the phone to Angela Merkel right now and ask her for some help, she's likely to get short shrift given that she's in the middle of a an election campaign and you know focusing on that for the next uh, month yes. is going to be far more of a priority. Which was of course the argument that Theresa May used to Brussels not really really not so long ago. She was going to go off focus on an election campaign come back with the latitude through her enormous majority to uh, to make compromises. And I think, I think people in Brussels have learned the lesson of Conservative British Prime Ministers telling them uh, we're going to have a vote, but don't worry, I'm going to win massively and it's all going to be okay. I think they've learned that lesson. Um, just while we're on the size of Theresa May's uh, majority or lack of, interesting development from the Labour Party, shifting, it seems, at least tonally, the focus on remaining a member of the single market during any transition period and potentially beyond that as well. Um, looking ahead, we've got the EU withdrawal bill in the House of Commons uh, next week and then the big vote on the Monday the week after. Tory whips are more ner even more nervous about that now because of the Labour shift than they were before. Um, they think that there are Tory MPs who accept the fact that they're leaving the EU but would like to have a much closer relationship, potentially even staying inside the single market. And they think they could end up losing some key uh, votes with the support of uh, the Labour Party. How significant do you think it was? Uh, it, it's both significant and it's not significant. It's significant because, you know, the Labour Party has been fudging its stance on Brexit since uh, you know, midnight of June the twenty third, twenty sixteen, and uh, you know that fudge was was inadvertent or otherwise part of the genius of, of Jeremy Corbyn's general election strategy, which was by failing to properly commit to any form of Brexit. Uh, or any specific form of Brexit, they were committed to Brexit happening, uh, they managed to combine in one coalition, you know, anxious Brexit Labour voters in what we usually call the Labour heartlands, uh, who were worried about the idea of backsliding, and, you know, Europhile voters, uh, almost all of the 
parliamentary Labour Party are part of that as well, you know, Europhiles uh, who, who are really, really upset about Brexit and some of whom don't want it to happen. Uh, and so I think it is significant that Labour have said, well, you know, this is our vision of a transition. Uh, we want to stay in the single market and the customs union for as long as four years and four years being crucial as that would take us into a possible Labour government post-2022. Uh, and also leaving the option open, although this again starts to sound a bit like the Labour fudges of, of Brexit's past, leaving the option open of staying in the single market and the customs union beyond Brexit. Although I don't really believe that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, long-standing Eurosceptics that they are, would, would live with that. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think it changes that much. We always knew that the big Labour activity of this first phase of Brexit would be the, the Great Repeal Bill, or, or the Repeal Bill, formerly known as the Great Repeal Bill. <laughs> uh, the not-so-Great Repeal Bill. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that is Labour's opportunity to combine with Tory Europhiles, uh, with all the other opposition parties. Lib Dems and SNP are exactly. equally unhappy and, about Brexit. And, and hammer the government on, on various bits, and that's, that's still what they'll do. But, you know, being more clear about the fact that they still want to leave the European Union, but this is the kind of deal they want, is not going to do them any harm in trying to peel away the likes of Anna Soubry and Nicky Morgan, who agree with them. Well, it's going to be, well, I was going to say, it's going to be fascinating. There is always the slight danger that Brexit's a bit boring, but it is important, and it's our job to uh, convey that and make it um, interesting. Uh, I think that's all we've got time for, not least because I need to run and get on a Eurostar and get back uh, to the UK while we still can. Don't forget you can sign up to my morning email briefing, uh, Redbox. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Redbox. And of course, Times subscribers can sign up to your Brexit briefing, Henry. You just go to the My Bulletins page in my account. I think that's, uh, that's the way to do it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so each new episode appears on your device. Go to iTunes or on your um, Android device or however you get your, your podcasts. Uh, but for now... Uh, from Brussels, from me, Matt Shorley and Henry Zeffman, it's goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 